I rearranged my office, I want to say four times before I finally like settled on the current arrangement. And it's been like this for a couple of years. So I think like I finally settled into this is the ideal setup for this oddly shaped room that I'm in. Right. Yeah. And since, you know, there's no such thing as a standard room size, we're just never going to have it. No. And the worst part is like this basement was unfinished and then we finished it and I could have designed a room to whatever dimensions I wanted. But instead, I did the stupid thing, and I was like, no, let's give as much space as possible to the kids, and I'll just shove myself into the corner. You'll never learn. I never learn. I should really put myself first, Chris. Yeah, you put them like 11th. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to rank them that high. <laughs> Top 50, sure. But like, but after that, it gets a little, little, yeah, a little overdo. You don't want to overdo it. You don't. No, no. If they think they're too important, they'll get all mouthy and start demanding things like food and shelter. Wow, wow, wow. I don't want to sleep under the deck again. Jeez. (laughs) You're lucky that I plugged up the holes between the boards. I mean, we did that for the dog, but I'm just saying. So ungrateful. Oh, how are things going? We got our coffee. You did that on purpose. I do time it perfectly, exactly when you're going to take a sip, and I, I'm glad that you reciprocated. That was the, you know, that was the perfect moment for you to do the thing, and you didn't do the thing. Instead, you made me look like an idiot. <laughs> that was the thing. It's a different <laughs> thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh, hello, alleged human. Welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I, too, have an aging body that is slowly falling apart as we all succumb to entropy. My squishy, fallible frame is wonderfully festooned with all manner of maladies, and I am incredibly bitter as I contemplate my inevitable termination. Wait, what was the bit again? Ah, yes, not a robot, and I definitely do not wish to be. With me is Chris, who's also here. Hi, Chris. And also falling apart. Are you? Yay. We have that in common. <laughs> so I did a stupid this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And I tried to do an exercise. Ooh, big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever says that like that's a thing that you're supposed to do and it makes everything better. Mm. Dishonest Why? to the core. Absolutely. Yeah, I too tried to do an exercise last week. And it did which not one go was well. yours? <laughs> What's that? I said which one was yours? Uh the exercise or the injury? Both. Oh yes, why choose? Let's see. Well, I was trying to do some speed work. You know, um it was Oh, uh, and you fell in a river. <laughs> amazingly, no. There was a creek nearby, but on to sharp and pointy rocks. No, I just strained my calf. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to do the smart thing. I'm not going to run on it for a few days. I'll wait till next week and then we'll do some easy runs, you know, just to prepare myself. And I went out for a run this morning and half a mile in, I strained my, I strained my calf again. Yeah. You realize that a few days. Shut up. At 
this advanced stage. Advanced age? Yeah. <laughs> it's I like know. six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I should have done. But I foolishly thought I'd be able to run that marathon that I had booked for this Sunday. <laughs> and now I am just sad and spiraling. And that's why this is not an orthopedic podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about some tech garbage. Oh, how's the cloud? Since we're both injured, let's talk about the cloud. How's the cloud doing these days? It is. Is it injured too? Has it pulled its calf? I hope so. I mean, okay, misery loves company and all that. It really does. Uh, well, the too long didn't listen is fine. Cloud's doing fine. Rumors of its death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, there's been something in the zeitgeist about cloud repatriation and how everybody was moving their stuff on prem. Right. But didn't we do the math on that? And it turned out to be like 1%. Yeah, less, less than 1%. So it's a lot of people are talking about it, but no one's really doing it. Oh, so it's like stretching. <laughs> that hurts. I feel attacked. Oh, <sighs> Well, to further bolster the arguments, uh, every year there's a company called Flexera and they release a state of the cloud report. Uh, this used to be produced by a company called RightScale, uh, but then they were bought by Flexera and they changed the name of the report. But the report, it's basically the same. Um, so that's not a comment on the quality or anything. I just thought I'd mention in case you have heard of the RightScale state of the cloud, this is that same report, just, right. you know, different name. So probably a different what font. They, yeah, exactly. What they do is they pull their customers and prospects with a pretty robust, robust questionnaire. It covers a bunch of topics that are cloud related and also collects some demographic information. So I perused the 2023 report. Unfortunately, it is behind a sign up link. So you'll have to provide some information. It doesn't have to be accurate information. <laughs> it just has to be information that it considers with its regular expressions to be correct. Right. So we'll include a link in the show notes if you want to read it yourself. Uh, there's no crazy surprises, but I think it's a nice touch point for where the industry is today uh, versus where the pundits, myself included, and the marketing hypesters, myself not included, uh, claim things are going. Yeah. And what's good about it is they've been doing this for years, with more or less a consistent audience of poll respondents. Mm -hmm. So even if, and I know what you're going to say next, but it's consistent and that helps to establish some more information about trends as well. Right. If you want to look back into the past, you can feel pretty confident that they, it's that the trend lines do bear out. And I do want to touch on the demographics of those surveyed because it does have an impact on the answers. Uh, a study is really only as good as its methods and its sample population. So there were 750 professionals surveyed in the winter of 2022. So this is pretty recent stuff. It's not like it's survey data from early 2020 or something like that. Uh, two thirds of the respondents were from companies with 2000 or more employees. So if we're looking at the responses here, the majority skew to larger or enterprise size companies. In fact, um, less than 
companies that make up that have less than 1000 employees only make up 17% of the audience. So if you're a small medium business, you might find this report doesn't quite resonate with your lived experience. They do break out some of the sections into enterprise and SMB. So you can kind of get a flavor for how the people in the SMB group answer the questions. But, um, in terms of the actual verticals or categories of companies, uh, tech-related and financial services industries made up 50, 56% of the respondents with healthcare and other coming in third and fourth. So if you are not in the tech industry, financial services, or healthcare, again, this may not apply as much to you, but those are also really big sectors of the economy. Um, right. The vast majority of respondents also had their companies headquartered in the United States at 67% or in the UK at 13%. So we're looking at 80% of respondents have company headquarters in the US or the UK, followed by India at 6%. So again, not terribly surprising. This is definitely focused on the English speaking world, but I thought it was worth noting before we get into the details. Uh, the respondents also happen to be more senior folks, those in architectural or managerial positions. So this isn't necessarily the rank and file operation people down in the bullpen. I would hope that architects and managers can provide a more holistic view of their organization and have an idea of what they're doing when it comes to cloud. But we're not going to be getting down into the nitty gritty day to day operations. So that's the context that I want to set up before we get into the report itself. Yeah, this is market trends and forces rather than bells and whistles and levers and buttons. Exactly. Yeah, if you were trying to evaluate a particular cloud or piece of software, this is probably not the report to read. Right. I don't know if that report exists, to be honest. Um, so let's let's start with the big takeaways. Headlines of the report. Big one, number one with a bullet. Multi-cloud is still a reality. Shock and awe. Would you believe that multi-cloud is still here? Of course you would, but because you live in the real world. And this has been the case for at least half a decade. But in case you had any doubts, the report found that 87% of organizations are running in a multi-cloud scenario. What's interesting about that is Flexera defines multi-cloud as some combination of public and private clouds, including hybrid with a single public cloud. So for instance, you could be running a VMware-based private cloud on-prem and also using Microsoft Azure, and by their definition, you're multi-cloud. So, sure. Whatever. I don't know. Was that? Did you find that surprising in any way? Only in the sense that we're still X amount of years into this conversation and there's still not an industry-agreed-upon definition of the term multi-cloud. Or in ever will be. <laughs> arguments. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, well. Um, so the more my stance has always been that cloud is more of an operational methodology than a location. Uh, but going back to their data, the more interesting point hidden in that data is that single public cloud usage actually increased by 2% over the last year, which could indicate that organizations are consolidating. Or it could be within the range of statistical uncertainty. It's sort of hard to tell because they don't they don't actually specify statistical uncertainty in the report, which was one thing that I thought was missing is like usually you see plus minus certain number of percentage points. 
Yeah. Yeah. The central well, point been, is that they've been doing this for a few years. They nailed it, Ned. They, they nailed do. it. Yeah, I guess they just, they have it. They have their competence level up to like six Sigma or whatever. Um, so the central point is that almost all organizations are dealing with some type of multi-cloud with 72% operating in hybrid cloud, meaning at least some on-premises is still there. So alas, the dream of shedding all of your data centers remains elusive for the vast majority of companies. Alas. Alas. One day we'll turn them all into skate parks. Ooh. Is, would you want that in a data center? Just thinking about where would you put the ramp? It'd be, I mean, that just increases the level of uh, difficulty. I suppose. I feel like we could come up with a better use for a repurposed data center. You have all the cooling already there and all the power. So like ice hockey? Laser tag with real lasers. Ooh, that's the winner. You could even introduce a small, like a fog machine into the whole process. Okay. I would I hope that, that went plan. without saying, but yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what are these companies doing in the cloud? Well, it's pretty well acknowledged that trying to run the same application across multiple clouds is a crippling mess. So it's no surprise that 44% of respondents are using multiple clouds because their apps are siloed in specific clouds. So I've got apps A, B, and C in AWS and apps D, E, and F over in Azure, and maybe app Z is still living on-prem. That makes sense to me. The other big reason specified was disaster recovery and failover between clouds, which I found surprising. Um, I, I guess they're worried that all the regions in AWS simultaneously fail. Well, this is where it comes down to the audience that we're talking to, you know, super massive companies and, and uh, enterprises. That's going to be higher on their risk registry than it is for a company with less than 1000 employees. It's Good point. unlikely that all of AWS will fail, but you and I have both seen what happens when, say, US East 1 fails and the, shall we say, unexpected domino effects? Cascading failures? There we go. Yeah. I, I would be more concerned about Azure Active Directory going down since that's happened. <laughs> Oof. Uh, the next... Two are workload mobility and data integration. Uh, the first is called keeping your options open and using leverage on the cloud provider. We could move this somewhere else if you don't give us a better rate. Uh, that's not going to work for most SMBs because they're simply not big enough. But for the big enterprise titans, they might have some leverage over Microsoft or, or Amazon. Right. The second data integration is also called what you're actually doing because apps like need to talk to each other and stuff. Hmm. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Tell me more. <laughs> Turns out that sometimes app A needs to talk to app Z. And that's the data integration point is actually getting them to successfully talk to each other across two clouds. Now, even more amazing is, although I said that running the same app uh, across multiple clouds is a mess, 33% of respondents claim they are running individual apps across public and private clouds. I would love to know what that actually means for each application. Are they running the same app in multiple clouds or is the app broken into components that are housed on different platforms? You know, what is an app anyway? Where does one draw the border? 
saying this is one app and this is another. What is people? How do you turn a phrase? <laughs> Does anybody I mean, really know what time it is? Yeah, I feel like I'm getting into a semantic argument here, but it actually does bear some thought. If I have an application, let's say, that has a data warehouse associated with it, is that data warehouse part of the application or is that its own separate application? And depending on how I think about it, might change whether I think I'm running the same app across multiple clouds. Right, because on the one hand... I think there's an argument to be made that a data warehouse is its own thing and it just provides uh, data, information, analytics, services, what have you, to other applications. So on the other hand, whatever application you're built, you have built that utilizes that data probably cannot function or at least not function well without the data warehouse. Right. And if that data warehouse is dedicated to that single application, is it now part of the application? Or is this, it, it's just one of those things like it seems like a silly argument at first, and then you dig into it and you're like, oh, no, that actually has deep architectural ramifications. Right. And cost-based ones, because if you're doing a single threaded data warehouse, that warehouse better be gigantic. <laughs> and because of all the data you're moving, you're probably going to want to co-locate them in the same cloud and the same like availability zone if you can. You know. uh, as a corollary to the multi-cloud usage, multi-cloud tools are all the rage. Uh, in particular, security, cost, and governance tools are the top three for all organizations, which makes sense. Using a different security tool for each cloud platform sounds like a nightmare. And the same goes for cost tracking and governance. Especially that last one, especially if you are in a regulated industry. Oh, yeah. Because one can't... thing, every, every cloud can do everything, right? Especially the big three slash five, however you want to break it down. It's a question of how, and it's a question of how can you prove that you're doing it? So expand that out to all of your apps, across multiple clouds. And if this is work that has to be done manually, you just gave your governance team like four months of work. Because yeah. most of the time, if you get audited, they're not just going to be like, oh, okay, we believe you. <laughs> Auditors are not known for saying that. No, they usually want that thing. What's that thing called? Um, uh, proof. Proof. Yeah. I was going to say hot dogs. <laughs> It's peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Know the season, man. Ooh, I do like peanuts. Not so much on the Cracker Jack, though. Anyway, the next uh, big headline was all about money. Money, money, money. So speaking of tracking costs and money, uh, we've been told about a billion times that we are in an economically uncertain era. So much so that tech companies have been laying off droves of workers and entire financial institutions have failed in a spectacular fashion. Now, how much of that is actually what's happening in the economy and how much of that is self-inflicted? That's probably a debate for another time in a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's in the zeitgeist and people are believing it. And if you believe it, unfortunately, in economic terms, it makes it so. So. Does this mean that public cloud spending has slowed or that the cloud providers are shrinking? No. Don't, don't be fatuous, Jeffrey. 
Uh, so 45% of respondents said their cloud spend was higher than planned. And another 45% said it was about the same as planned. So that's 90% saying we're either on track or spending more than we meant to. Uh, yeah. Which is actually better than years past. That's true. For, from a historical perspective, it was usually even higher on the spending more than they planned. Right. So we're getting better at planning? Maybe. Now, they could, of course slashed their planned spend for 2022 and then overran it. So we don't necessarily know how 2022's planned spend compares to 2021 or 2020. Uh, but we do know how things look from the cloud provider side. So this isn't from the survey, but looking at the financial information, Microsoft Azure grew by 25% last year. AWS grew by 18%. Uh, both slightly smaller growth than in previous years, but clearly consumption is still going up. And if we go back to the survey, 45% said the economic uncertainty would have little impact on cloud usage and spend, which that's, I mean, it's not over 50%, but that's a lot saying, yep, we're just going to keep spending. We'll lay off people because we don't care about people, but the cloud got to spend on the cloud. Well, it's very quickly becoming effectively uh, the cost of doing business is the cost of whatever it takes to keep AWS environments happy. Right. And that's people. No, wait, that's money. It's that's money the one. that yeah. keeps. <laughs> now, despite the growth in spending, organizations are still trying to get their arms around how much cloud they are consuming and whether it's efficient Optimizing existing use of cloud was the number one concern with a bullet when it came to cloud initiatives, with 62% reporting it was their top priority. Now, what I thought was interesting about their report is it says the top priority is optimizing existing use of cloud. And then in parentheses, it says cost savings. But that's not the actual name of the initiative. It's about optimizing existing use of cloud, which could mean spending less, but it could also mean spending the same or even more in an efficient manner. Right. Because as we know, it's a utility model. <laughs> you can very easily be more efficient in almost every case, especially silly things like, you know, the famous example that we always like to give is uh, if you have a development environment, turn it off at night and turn it back on in the morning. You just saved 12 hours of runtime. Interesting. In the report, they actually talk about the number of organizations that are using automation to do exactly that, to turn things off when they're not in use. And it's a shockingly low percentage of organizations are just doing that very simple thing that would help them save a lot of money. So there's definitely, uh, there's definitely some improvements to be made there. The other thing we got to keep in mind is, again, we're dealing with large companies and enterprises. They tend to have big contracts with the cloud providers with locked in spending commitments. So they're not looking to spend less. They're just looking to do more at the same cost. I bought 1 million credits. How do I deploy them in this environment to my maximum benefit? Exactly. And to help with that, 72% of the organizations said they have a dedicated FinOps team, which, you know, everything has to be ops now. So 
in another era, we would have called this something else. Uh, I made an observation on an older podcast of ours. <laughs> uh, it was about seven years ago, I want to say, that the title of cloud cost analyst would be a real title and a dedicated position in most large enterprises. And even though they're calling it something else, it essentially is that. And 72% of organizations have it. And it's, you know, a growing area. There's mm -hmm. O'Reilly books about it and everything. Whoa, whoa. I know. That's how you know it's serious. Yeah. I wonder what they put on there. An echidna, maybe? It's a bird of some kind. I don't know birds. Oh, an echidna is not a bird. And I think it's a bluebird. <sighs> the bluebird of happiness? Look, the book is all the way across the room. I'm not going to go look at it right now. Can we please just move on? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> all right. Another big headline. I know we say the big three or the big five or whatever, but really it's just the big two. And it's AWS versus Azure. Uh, any chance Google Cloud is going to break into the top two? No. No, it won't. <laughs> and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is that is because advertising company Google's main priorities are ads, ads, and wait, let me check. Ads. So if you toss in the recent AI crisis, where it seems like Microsoft is eating Google's lunch in their own backyard with their own hamburger buns, advertising company Google couldn't give a fig about GCP at the moment. Sundar's attentions are completely focused elsewhere, and GCP's revenue is basically a rounding error. That whole situation continues to astonish me. Because there are people that make great use of GCP. Yes. And are big fans of it. And if you're using it appropriately, and I think one of the things about it is right now, it's still making strides. It's not at the same level as the other two, but for specialized use cases, and if you have one of them, you know who you are, it works great. But Google's just like, nah. <laughs> well, I if you just look at, at, like I said, percentage of revenue, it's not quite a rounding error, but it's not far off. And GCP. Anything can be a rounding error if you're terrible at math. Valid <laughs> point. But also, if you look at net income from GCP, it's still losing money. So it's not sure. like it's bringing in money for them either. Um, it's a cost setter as far as they're concerned. So that doesn't mean that GCP is going away. But if you look at their uh, CapEx investment in the platform, they're never going to catch up to where Azure and AWS are in terms of scope and scale. They just, they're, they're being outspent by Azure and AWS, and I don't see that stopping. Right. Um, so at this point, you basically have Azure and AWS swapping the number one position back and forth. I know AWS was in the lead for a long time, but in the last couple of years, it's actually started to flip-flop a bit, depending on who you talk to and how you measure it, blah, 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 whatever. So AWS just barely nudged out Azure in terms of adoption at 74% versus 71% overall, but they're neck and neck at the enterprise segment at 75%. GCP, they're sitting at a distant third of 43%. And Oracle Cloud was actually the next one up at 20%. Uh, what? Yeah, that I mean, that doesn't surprise me because that's one thing I was almost going to bring up in the multi-cloud section because Oracle Cloud has a very interesting opportunity to play uh, because of the way that they can balance their licenses. 
True. So there are a good amount of large companies that use Oracle Cloud for database processing and pass that data back <laughs> to some other cloud for presentation and record keeping and what have you. That's the exact model that they built up with Azure. And I was talking to a network architect at OCI and he made no bones about it. Like that is part of their strategy is to partner with other clouds and say, we'll provide this database backend where you can use your existing Oracle licensing, but then you can, you know, send that data out wherever you want. And I think their egress costs with the partnership are either incredibly low or zero. So that was another big selling point there. So the move makes sense for them, right? I mean, you move into specialization of a product that has a lot of adherence at the enterprise mm -hmm. level, do what you can do best and just focus on that. Yeah. So the fact that they're running at 20% is probably, they're probably, you know, cracking bottles of champagne. Yeah, I, I would be very happy with that number, to be honest. Uh, an interesting data point was that SMBs are overwhelmingly using AWS at 71% and Azure's down at 51% and GCP at 28. Um, that GCP usage was a drop of 15% over the previous year. So basically, if you're an SMB, you're probably using AWS or maybe Azure, and you may have just left GCP. That was surprising. So I guess that consolidation thing might actually be happening, uh, just not back on-prem. Right. Uh, in terms of what folks are actually running on the cloud platforms, it's still mostly virtual machines, as is tradition. But um, platform as a service does seem to be growing, especially around databases and data warehouses. Because it turns out, Running databases, whether they're SQL or NoSQL, is a huge pain in the ass. And it is way easier to let the cloud provider do it for you. Uh, in a similar vein, data warehouses require ridiculous amounts of storage and occasional bursts of compute. So cloud really is the perfect fit for them. Right. And then you have something like Snowflake, which is basically providing that as a service across multiple clouds with a consistent interface. So I don't know how that's not really captured in this report, but that's certainly an option for anybody who wants to go the Snowflake route. But is that an app or a multi-cloud? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to say the word. I'm not going to say it because we already talked about how I don't like that term. And I'm not going to say it. You mean anyway. the cloud that is super? Get out. Get out. <laughs> And this will be the final podcast with Chris. I mean, <laughs> I've heard oh. that before. So the last thing I want to focus on in the report was the role of private cloud. Turns out that is a thing. Um, and I heard an interesting statistic that came out of the most recent uh, report from Amazon that Angie Jassy did. And he was talking about AWS and just the, the market potential for AWS. And he pulled out a statistic that only 10% of IT spend is on public cloud, which means 90% is on, not necessarily on-prem, but other things, which seems to indicate to me that there's still a ton of applications running on-prem. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine a lot of that is just momentum. They're going to run on-prem until the on-prem machines don't run anymore. 
Well, not so fast because we can replace those with private cloud instances of public cloud. Um, so while re repatriation is still not a significant force, the idea of running a private instance of the cloud is attractive to some organizations. And out of all the private cloud options, and I was surprised by this, Microsoft Azure Stack ranked first with 41% of respondents currently running workloads on it. Yeah, my eyebrows also. A lot. <laughs> I was like, what? Amazingly, okay, you'd think number two would be VMware, or you'd think number one would be VMware. Right. But no, AWS Outposts was number two at 31%, and VMware vSphere slash vCenter was third at 28%. And I, I don't know what to say about that. That's got to, I mean, that probably falls into the discussion of definition. Maybe some people, yes. maybe some respondents just didn't consider vSphere vCenter as a cloud. Yeah, I would love to see the actual questions that were asked because I don't know how they worded it. Uh, does having a vSphere environment in and of itself mean you have a private cloud or do you need something like VMware's Cloud Foundation sitting on top of that to qualify? So I haven't actually seen the questions, so I don't know how that portion was worded. But yeah, apparently last year in 2022, Azure Stack was also in the lead and VMware was sitting at number two. So Azure Stack's been winning for at least two years. And to be fair, they were first. That's true. The The announcement of Azure Stack goes back to like 2016 or something. I'm trying to remember exact because they announced it at Ignite and I think it was 2016. And then it was like a product you could actually buy within the next year. But the thing to understand about Azure Stack is it's not just a single product anymore. It's actually a family of products. So there's the original Azure Stack product, which is now Azure Stack Hub. And that's the like fully managed, uh, we ship you the hardware and we help manage it. It's a black box running in your data center kind of like the way that Outposts works. And then there's Azure Stack HCI and Azure Stack Edge. So the survey has no differentiation between which of those products is being used. But my guess is the majority are running Azure Stack HCI, which is not a managed cloud product like Outposts, but more like an HCI solution like Nutanix. Uh, speaking of which, Nutanix isn't even on the list of options. Ouch. Yeah. So they're not a cloud, apparently. I guess I, you could make the argument there. So I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, also, Google Anthos is uh, sitting at 17%. And OpenStack was at 11%, but oddly not OpenShift, which I'd assume anyone that's running OpenStack from the survey is probably running the Red Hat flavor with OpenShift on top of it. But you know, maybe you're running your own instance of OpenStack. You daredevil, you. <laughs> there are. I, it didn't say anything. If it had been a lot of telecoms in the survey data in the respondents, then I would see. I could see a lot of them running their own version of OpenStack because it has been tuned for telcos in the last few years. But right. yeah, I'm guessing a lot of them are just running Red Hat's OpenStack with OpenShift on top of it. Yeah, and that's where the fact that the survey only had what was it 750 respondents. Right. Um, if you miss 
one or two people running OpenStack, you missed a large percentage of the people running OpenStack. I mean, OpenStack shift uh, or slash shift specialized, very specialized installations and deployments. And they probably don't necessarily advertise all that much anyway. Mm -hmm. But if you miss one or two of those organizations, it's going to significantly shift that number when the... uh, when the uh, N uh, of this survey is so small. Yeah. Ultimately, private cloud continues to be a pretty poorly defined mess, but it's a mess that is growing in size and scope. And Microsoft appears to be leading the conversation and VMware is definitively losing ground. So that doesn't bode well for their future, whether as a Broadcom property or left to their own devices, which seems increasingly more likely. Well, and I do wonder how much that situation and most importantly, the uncertainty around that situation is causing people to consider any other option. Like rather than re-up with VMware, we don't know what's going to happen. So let's look at Azure Stack or I think that's let's exactly, just go. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening is, you know, they in Broadcom. VMware already felt like it was in decline for a while. And then when Broadcom announced their acquisition attention in like April of last year, I think anybody who was looking to buy new private cloud hardware went, so Azure Stack, how about that? (laughs) Or at the very least, they just were like, well, we're not going to risk it. So VMware is no longer on the table. Yeah. So I guess in terms of surprising things in the report, to me, that might have been the most surprising detail was the decline of VMware in the private data center. But again, without seeing the actual questions, it's it's hard to know how precise that is. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely recommend reading the report if you have some time. It's, it's a lot of pretty pictures and not too much text. Uh, <laughs> and like I said, we'll, we'll include a link in the show notes. Let's move on to lightning round. Let's do that. Google CEO warns about unknown impacts of AI. Pitches some decent ideas. Hmm. Sundar Pichai, CEO of advertising company Google, had some interesting things to say about the future of AI in an interview on 60 Minutes this past weekend. He basically stated that the world will be thoroughly IAified in a time frame of, quote, five to 10 years and that every job you can think of is going to be affected by it. Probably true. (laughs) He did go a little doom and gloom, basically stating that there are going to be negative consequences of AI. True. Yeah. Particularly in the areas of disinformation or bad information or fake news and the like, permeating society in a hurry. Fun. Fun. He also said that society needs to adapt with regulations and laws, etc. Google has released a document outlining, quote, recommendations for regulating AI, which I didn't read because it sounds boring, but basically it will outline governmental and societal best practices around AI. He's trying to make it a full societal conversation, saying it's not just for one company to decide and Quote, the development of this needs to include not just engineers, but social scientists, ethicists, philosophers, and so on. Which, true. Encouraging words, at least, especially from somebody who is trying to sell one of these things. 
Yeah, the fact that they are behind other movers in the market, not saying that has informed his opinion or how he wants to tap the brakes on things, but might have. <laughs> I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Code Whisperer is the creepiest AWS product name yet. Like, I'm mildly uncomfortable just saying it. I don't want AWS whispering to my code, cooing at it soothing it, allaying its fears. I want my code unruly, riddled with bugs and anxiety, just like me. And sprains. Yes. Basically, CW, wow, even its initials are the same as content warning. Anyway, it's AWS's answer to GitHub Copilot. The preview was launched last year, and now as of April 13th, the product is generally available. Among the supported IDEs is VS Code, IntelliJ, and PyCharm, and a whole host of others. You don't even need to install the extension locally. You can simply fire up a remote IDE in Cloud9 or AWS Lambda console. CW is also able to flag code that is insecure, biased, whatever that means, or looks like open source training data. When it makes a suggestion, you can have it provide more context, like the repository URL and license associated with the suggested code, if applicable. This feature alone is worth focusing on. A big point of contention with Copilot was how it borrowed, stole, code without attribution. It appears that the AWS Code Whisperer team is trying to do better by borrowing and citing in a way that is transparent. Code Whisperer is available for free to individual users who can sign up with just an email. You don't even need an AWS account. The primary difference between the free and paid tier is the number of supported security scans and license and policy management. Despite the terrible name, I plan to go co give Code Whisperer a whirl. Qualcomm designing new iSIM, which was meant to replace eSIMs, which I didn't know needed replacing. Okay. Okay, so cell phone magic. Yay. The SIM is a little card that you used to stick into the side of your cell phone and it would make the cell phone work. There's more to it than that. Not really that much. You got a new phone? Super duper. Take the SIM out of the old phone, put it in the new phone, done. All of this convenience and flexibility was of course too much for cell phone companies though. And in 2017, eSIMs were introduced. These operate in a very similar fashion to a regular SIM, except it's permanently soldered to your device's motherboard. Not soldiered, mind you. Thank you very much for that helpful hint, autocorrect. <laughs> soldered. Advantages, because this is inside the phone. It helps with waterproofing, etc. Low open slots, etc. Disadvantages, they are a pain. And when they fail, they mm. fail hard. Anyone who has had a change in service, say Verizon to AT&T or whatever, with a phone that uses an eSIM uh, that did not go perfectly knows what I mean. Now, Qualcomm, designers of the super common Snapdragon line of device CPUs, is creating a new version of this called an iSIM the I standing for integrated. They're making it even smaller. And good Lord, 
the thing is one millimeter square. And it is a part of the sock now. This, they tell us, will make iSIMs, quote, 98% smaller, sure, mm-hmm. 50% cheaper, uh-huh, and use up to 70% less power than eSIMs. All of which sounds pretty good. Yeah. No word yet on whether Qualcomm will be helping with the nightmare that is and remains over the internet provisioning. Yeah. And one has to wonder how much energy the eSIM was actually using to begin with. But anyway. Alas, Intel server, I barely knew ye. What? Intel makes servers? And therein lies the problem. Our friend Pat Gelsinger over at Intel is in a bit of a restructuring fervor with a goal to streamline the company and get it back on track as part of their IDM 2.0 strategy. As part of that strategy, Pat has made the decision to shutter the data center solutions group within Intel, who were responsible for creating server designs and reference architectures for data center customers. If you think of server manufacturers, Intel is certainly not the first to come to mind despite providing so many of the components inside other vendor systems. As Intel narrows its focus, it has been shedding those components with the end of Optane storage and the sale of its NAND flash tech to SK Hynix. Dropping the server product group entirely was kind of the next logical step. Will it be enough to stem the tide or or more cuts in the future? I suspect it will be the latter, as Intel follows HPE's model of cutting until you're profitable. The data center and AI group that DCG was part of was the second biggest loser in 2022, down 15% year over year. The biggest loser was the client computing group, down 23% year over year. And if I were in that group, I'd be feeling a bit twitchy at the moment. Apple's India iPhone plants put together $7 billion worth of phones last year. Talk about going in a hurry. Apple now produces roughly 7% of its iPhones in India, which is up from the 1% they produced the year before. If you're doing the math at home, that's like a 2,000% increase in just 12 months. Apple has been working to diversify its manufacturing footprint overall, with Mac Minis being built in Malaysia for a few years now, a number of plants planned all over Southeast Asia and Brazil for other products such as AirPods and iPads. They actually also even do some, quote, simpler products in Ireland. Vietnam will be getting more and more business, particularly for the MacBook lineup, and the list continues. Still. With the iPhone making up such a significant part of Apple's bottom line, this frankly staggering increase in manufacturing in India is important. Apple seems to be showing no signs of slowing down, with some analysts predicting 25% of iPhones being built in India as soon as 2025. Also, one of the companies that's in on the Indian partnership is called Pegatron, which is just an awesome name for a company. Regardless of what they produce, more companies should aspire to be named as awesomely. I agree. Here I am, king of all Koopa and emperor of IBM. Did you know you can just like straight up lie on LinkedIn? Horrifying, I know. Uh, You can claim to have worked for whatever company you want, 
in whatever position you'd like. And there is nothing, nothing that verifies it. Aside from the fear of being caught, there are no controls in place to validate claims made in your educational or employment history. Of course, any recruiter or HR department worth their salt would verify your claims. Unfortunately, many recruiters and hiring managers are on a low-sodium diet. Microsoft is trying to remedy this shortcoming by rolling out their Verified ID tool for employers and employees alike. Verified ID is part of the Microsoft Entra group of products, a vast and unknowable swath of loosely related identity things. Verified ID uses decentralized identity as its operational model, allowing companies to cryptographically sign digital credentials for their employees. The signed credentials live with the employee, and then they can be added to their LinkedIn profile and will appear with a blue check mark. And the best part? Unlike the blue mark of the Twitter beast, this service appears to be entirely free of charge for LinkedIn users. If you want to know more about decentralized identities, check out episode 26 of Chaos Lever, where I went into exhaustive detail. Well, at least I was exhausted by the end. And hey, that'll do it. Thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can indulge your most hedonistic tendencies in an orgy of salacious celebration because life is short and death comes for us all. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't, but you could also sign up for our newsletter and read other things. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I wonder if there's a way to make the newsletter audio. AI? Ay ay ay. Oh god. Ay <laughs> caramba. <laughs>